0: like I, hold your head up high, till you find the blue bird of happiness, you will find greater peace of mind, knowing there's a blue bird of happiness, and Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Now, in this episode, I'll be beginning my look at Dick's 1967 novel, Counter Clock World, uh, and I'll probably cover this over four or four episodes. Um, this was a, this uh, this this particular novel is quite a lot of fun. It's it's got some of his most humorous scenes, I think, and, and and tensions, and it's got one of the the better humorous relationships we see in Dick's novels from the 1960s. Of course, that's something we see in virtually every one of his novels from the 60s is a broken or traumatic relationship um really something dick i think is drawing out of his own own, own life the other notable thing about Counterclock world and I'll, I'll get to the main device of it in a minute but the, the other main thing about this is it's such a religious novel and if you're interested in that aspect of dick's writing the the fact that he really does have this religious turn in the 70s and 80s and that becomes the major theme in his exegesis and and you know, the, the Valus children, and all that. And if you want to see the roots of this, I think this is a good novel to look at. I mean, we're in a world here where people are literally being resurrected on a daily basis, where the entire rules of life and death have changed. And it's almost impossible not to to, to experience a religious revival here. Um, and we have explosion of mainstream religion where people are, you know, accepting the, the language of Christianity again. We also have the rise of new religious movements, which is a theme Dick is very, very interested in later in his career. Um, especially even his last novel, the last pot novel published during his lifetime, the uh, transmigration of Timothy Archer, is barely a science fiction novel. It's really a, a novel about new religious movements in California in the 19, you know, 70s. So um, now the main device of counterclock Clock World is what's called uh, the Hobart phase. And the Hobart phase is basically kind of an expansion and contraction of of the universe in in the sense of time, right? So for most of human history, we've been moving forward in time. People are born and they die and their life is over and a new generation takes over and over as time moves on, knowledge is built up each generation. Now with the Hobart phase, what was theorized is that eventually this will start to contract and we're gonna have a kind of a contraction of time where time's gonna fall back on itself. And this is gonna be a cyclical process, right? And so what, that's what happens. So in the counterclock world, we're already past this turning point in the Hobart phase where time is going backwards. and It's been going back for a while. So everyone's sort of used to the rules of this new society. Now, not everything goes back in time, and in my review on We Can Remember For You Wholesale, which is kind of like a short story that ties into this novel and plays with some of the themes, I was really frustrated that he didn't seem to have that much, that actually went backwards. The only thing that, that went backwards was that it was a handful of things. In the novel, it, it works a little bit better, because it's really more about the theology of, of life and death and and resurrection and you don't need everything to go backwards. I don't know if you could write such a novel, if it could even be possible to write a novel in which time was really in every way going backwards. So we have like the serious stuff and then we have kind of the humorous stuff and sometimes the overlap. The main way that time is going backwards is that the dead are rising from their grave. So as time goes back, when it gets when it reaches back to the point in which they died, they'll wake up usually in their grave asking for help. There's people who make it a career to dig these people out of, out of their jail, uh, graves, uh, care for them until they're ready to go out in the world and, and try to profit from, from this by sell, essentially selling them to families and friends. Now, at some point, St. Paul and even Jesus are going to be risen by this Hogarth phase, at least you know, that's what's strongly implied. It's going to keep going back. Uh, that's the most serious aspect of it. The other serious aspect of it is this human obligation then to destroy knowledge as we move back in time. So uh, as we get to periods of time in which ideas didn't exist, they don't just vanish. right? It's actually the duty of humans to seek out that knowledge and, and destroy it. So the world is actually losing knowledge as the Hogarth phase retreats. And actually some people try to make a big deal out of like the extinguishment of their of their master's thesis or their book or another piece of knowledge. So eventually there'll be a time when we lose Einstein, we, we lose Newton, You know, we're back to the middle ages. Now, of course, people still remember stuff. So the mind still kind of works in a forward way, but the written texts of these things are abolished. And that's the important role of the library. The library is no longer a preserver of knowledge it's actually got the opposite function, which is the destroyer of knowledge, and this gives them a lot of political power and makes them kind of a, actually a fearful place. They're actually a coercive agent um, and a major power player in society, not just a place people go for, for knowledge. So you may go to the library looking for knowledge about a person, and it doesn't exist, right? Um, now, with the death and rebirth thing, the people who are going back in time, they've been reborn, they're eventually going to become, they will be a... Young adults, then teenagers, then children, then babies, and eventually they'll have to crawl into a womb. Any womb will do, and they'll stay there for nine months, and then that woman has to have sex with just anyone to kind of complete the process of going out of existence. Right? So the world's being populated by these deadite, deadies who come from, are, are born. But there also seems to be people who are born in the normal way, and it's not really clear if they're going forward in time or backward in time. So there's a mixed population of people. Now, then you've got all the humorous ways or the, kind of the jokey ways that Dick plays with time going backwards in this novel. Things like cigarettes starts as butts. You, you open up your pack of cigarettes, take out a butt, and you, you smoke it till it's long. Uh, people who are going back in time will engorge food. In, instead of eating dinner, they'll engorge food. And then they, at the, when their refrigerator is full of engorged food, they have to go and take it to the grocery store and, and drop it off there. Others even like whisker packets where people in the morning will put whiskers on their face. Instead of shaving, so everything's kind of working backwards. But a lot of it is—it's not like it doesn't happen naturally in a lot of cases. It's almost like people have to do it almost like a cultural thing. So how much is actually going backwards is not clear. What does seem very, what is very clearly happening is people are rising from from the grave, like instead of eating, because they engorge, they, they vomit out full food. I like they'll, they'll vomit out a banana or something. That they'll put in the refrigerator instead, so they eat this thing called they drink, have this drink called sogum, which seems to be their main source of, of nourishment. Um, now, the main plot of this novel involves the rebirth of an important religious figure who had died sometime before, and then the conflict over that. The setting is essentially one small company that uh, of, of people who go around these graveyards and dig out people from, from their grave when they wake up. That's, that's their job. And then they try to make some money from the, the, essentially selling them to, to loved ones. So I think that's enough introduction to the main ideas behind the novel. And let me get into the story itself as much as I can. I'll, I'll probably look at five chapters today, the first quarter or so of, of the novel, where we'll really kind of meet our main characters and you know, in our, our main setting. So, chapter one's a really good introduction to this world. Um, we're, we're, we're introduced to a guy named Joseph Tinbane, who's a police officer, and he'll be a major character in the whole entire novel. He's like a beat cop, but his main job is to is to patrol the cemeteries because every once in a while, you know, someone's going to call up, like, "I'm awake. What am I doing in this coffin? I need to, to." You know, get up. A lot of these people, they think they should be in a hospital bed, or think they should be in their home. They're disoriented. Sometimes they're very angry because they feel a trick's been played on them. But essentially, their their mental state is right where it was when right before they died. So Tinbane hears a voice. It's a woman named Mrs. Benton. She's she's kind of a character in the novel, but but just barely. She's she's just a way for Dick to introduce us to this concept. And so he goes out when he hears the the voice. He goes out to the grave, and you know he needs to needs people to dig them out, right? She died in 1974, so from whenever the Hogarth phase started, they're they're already back to 1974, and so everyone who's died in 1974 is going to start to wake up, right? So things are going in reverse, and then there's these companies then that help revive people. They're called Vitariums, right? And there's big ones and small ones. Our main characters are in the Sebastian Hermes Vitarium, and they're they're just a small firm. They're not doing that well and they're going to get their big chance to to make a big profit so that's kind of the driving motivation of this firm it's run by a a reborn person named sebastian hermes so he actually had died he was a revival as well and so tim bain he's got a good relationship with them so occasionally he calls uh sebastian hermes and says we got a job for you right rather than calling one of these other firms and and they're a small firm so they'll they'll be willing to come up at a, at a moment's notice and and go to the graveyard and and help this woman all Tinbane can really do is dig a like air hole and you know talk to her a little bit and try to try to calm the woman down she's got to wait for the Viterium to come because what does the Viterium have well they have several different functions one is they do the physical digging out of the grave another thing they do is they check the health because these are people who just died right so their health isn't good so they have to be stabilized so they don't die again and then they also have to go through this kind of sacrament of rebirth. So religion has adapted to this. So now you have a, a new sacrament in which, you know, a religious sacrament based on Christianity in which people are, are reborn. So the, the boss here is a man named Sebastian Harris. And we should get his description because it's, it's kind of a good one. Quote, the flask of Hermes vitarium That's the name of the company. The flask of Hermes Vitarium consisted primarily of Sebastian Hermes himself with the help of a meager assortment of five employees. No one got hired at the establishment and no one got fired. As far as Sebastian was concerned, these people constituted his family. He had no other, being old, heavy-set, and not very likable. They, another earlier vitarium had dug him up only 10 years ago and he still felt on him in the dreary part of his night, the coldness of the grave. Perhaps it was what made him sympathetic to the flight of the old born. The firm occupied a small wooden rented building around which had survived World War III and even portions of World War IV. However, he was, at this late hour, of course, home in bed, asleep in the arms of Lota, his wife. Quote. So we were just told he doesn't have a family except his employees. But then we're, we're told in the next paragraph he has a wife. So that tells us already quite a lot about the relationship he, he has with, with, his, with his wife. Um, but that's an important aspect of his character. Is he's a reborn? His wife Lota is a is a young woman who's who's not an old born, right? So there's 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 this you know they're gonna cross ages at some point, right? She's gonna get older and he's gonna get younger. Well, of course, there's a lot of ambiguity whether the the regular born people if they also get younger. And there's some that kind of theorize that they kind of age slower or they, they the Hobart face somehow affects them, but. Um, Dick doesn't really work all this out very well kind of in the the theory of the novel he just kind of is playing with these ideas as he's apt to do of course so anyways uh, sebastian getting the call from pinbane he calls all the workers together and says we got to do this job right we can't afford to lose any business right so basically they have the, like the physical aspect of it the medical aspect the religious aspect of it and then there's like the selling end of the business which sebastian already explains here they he doesn't really like that aspect of it but it's how they make their money right so essentially the law is seems to be that the the bodies of the oldborn are the possession of the vitarium that that carry gets them out of the grave you know so sometimes people can dig themselves out and then they're free to go they're not owned by anyone now their souls are still i guess their own but their body is owned by the vitarium, And then people essentially have to bail them out. So they're put for sale. And it might be an old employer might hire them, family member might buy them, you know, or some other one will buy them. And of course, people who are more notable and famous, you know, like a king or a, a I don't wanna say a king or an important businessman or something will, will fetch a higher price than, than just, you know, this, like this grandma here, Mrs. Benton. So the religious figure here, the one who does the religious oversight of these old births, these revivals, is a man named Father Fain. And Father Fain and Sebastian have a lot of interesting theological discussions throughout the novel. I don't know how many of these I want to get into, but they seem to have a very good relationship with one another, and they like to talk about the Bible and theology and the meaning of the Hobart phase kind of at at the spiritual level. And they even talk about, in this chapter, biblical passages about the passage of time, trying to find if there's any biblical evidence or support for the entire concept of of the of the revivals and the Hobart phase in general. So the whole gang gets to the gets to the graveyard, Tilbane meets them, and so we actually see this revival take place, this this reviving of Mrs. Benton. And it's it's a fairly compassionate process where they talk her down, try to explain what's going on, wake her up and and, you know, they do this every day, so they get a little annoyed from time to time hearing the same questions from these oldborn, But nevertheless, it seems to be a fairly sympathetic process, right? We're told a little bit here about how the phase seems to work, that it does seem to be an almost uh, cyclical process. Now, the, what the big discovery in this chapter is that Thane, the, the father, Father Thane, who has some kind of level of psychic ability, he begins to sense that there's someone about to be born here of kind of great historical meaning and great historical weight. He doesn't quite know when or who, but he thinks like, if we look around, we might find the graveyard, the gravestone of whoever we're looking for here, because there seems to be someone important here about to, to wa- awaken, about to be revived, and we're gonna want that job, right, of course, because it's, it's big money. So at this point in the story, their concern is almost entirely about the profit, about the money. Now, before I get to this final part, you know, I want to say that Sebastian is constantly thinking theologically about the Hobart phase and this, this kind of in-reverse cycle of death and rebirth. And we have some wonderful kind of theological speculation. And, and a lot of this, I imagine, is just Dick's own readings and thoughts about theology coming, coming through. In fact, he's got like theologians are the epigraphs of every single chapter. Um, chapter one, by the way, is St. Augustine. Place there is none, we go backward and forward, and there is no place." Um, end quote. That, that's, that's Augustine. Um, and obviously that's a reference to, to time, right? Time, Place not mattering, but time mattering, right? In the big scheme of things. But listen to this. This is just great stuff, if, if you're interested in theology anyways. Um, and this mortal, he thought, must put on immortality. And then the saying that is written, he thought, will come to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. Grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? And so forth. He roamed on, using his flashlight to avoid tripping over the headstones. He moved very slowly, and now he's hearing, but not exactly, not literally with his ears, but rather inside him, the dim stringings underground. Others, he thought, will one day soon be old born. Their flesh and particles are migrating back and already finding their way into their one time places. He sensed the eternal process, the unending complex activity of the graveyard. And it gave him a thrill of enthusiasm and of great excitement. Nothing was more profoundly optimistic, more powerful in its moment of good than this reforming of bodies, which had, as Paul put it, corrupted away, and now with the Hobart phase at work, reversing the corruption, End quote. Now, of course, it seems that the Jews in the time of, of Christ believed in bodily resurrection, right? Because actually Jesus goes up body and all, right? There's no body of, of Christ in Christian theology, Right. And it it seems there's that belief in that time that bodies are resurrected. Of course, they also see bodies decay and rot. So I'm not quite sure how they join that. But what we have here with the Hobart phase is literally the particles when we decay. Right. Our particles could spread all over the, the ecosystem. Right. Worms, you know, eat parts of us and deposit parts of us all over. And eventually we're spread all over. Right. But the particles through the Hobart phase actually come back and join with the bodies. And that seems to be the core of what the Hobart phase does. A lot of the other stuff is just there for jokes. Really what it is about reconstituting these bodies particle by particle. And of course, he's giving theological significance to it. So anyways, they they finally find this grave. And I think it's the biggest grave around, so it's not hard for them to find. But it's a man named Thomas Peake. His dates were 1921 to 1971. Now, of course... um, He's going to arise soon. Mrs. Benton died in 1974. So there's a three-year gap here, which suggests that the Hobart phase doesn't work in a strict day-to-day level. You know, it seems different people will rise up around the time they die, but not maybe on the day, you know, as time goes in reverse. And what was he? Well, Thomas Peake was the head of a new religious movement called the Udi, or the Uditi. So sometimes it's called Udi... And I guess the, the the Udi cult, and then the followers are the Uditi, right? So sometimes you'll hear both. And he's the one who who founded it. Now this church has since since uh, Thomas Peak died been taken over by this guy named Raymond Roberts, right? Who's also getting younger, it seems. Um, but Thomas Peak had died, so there's there's this idea that there's going to be like a crisis in this church as the the, the followers of Peak compete with the followers of this new guy um Raymond Roberts right now Raymond Roberts the popular impression is that Raymond Roberts took the Udi from being a real legitimate religion with actual real theological ideas and some good ideas and some meaning into making it basically like a con artist like a really kind of kind of a cult thing that's kind of a fake like a a scam right now the heart of it is this this kind of idea of a shared religious joined experience in fact, Loti says right, right out that, you know, when we learned in college, when we learned about this, we, we taught that under Peak, the Udi weren't a, a racket, right? But essentially now they are a racket. So the question here is when Peak's revived, can he revive the Udi's faith into something more authentic? Can he also revive that religion, make it something more meaningful? Um, but also in the more short-term way, if they can get a hold of this contract, if they can essentially lay claim to this body and be here when he wakes up, you know, and revive him. They can sell him for a lot of money, right? And basically deal with their the the firm's financial problems. So as this chapter ends, Sebastian tells his wife Loti to go to the library to investigate what she can about about Peak, and maybe yeah, I can think of the yeah, mostly about Peak. And she's terrified of the library, right? So there's a running joke, which actually has it's for good reasons. We see by the middle part of the novel, but. You know the in the early part of this was a really funny joke about just her terror, terror going to the library right because again the library is not just a place for knowledge anymore it's it's really one of the center points of of controlling all knowledge in in the world is the library because they they have this job of destroying knowledge as it as it gets to the point where it shouldn't exist anymore right now many authors are supposed to do this themselves like destroy the last manuscript the libraries are destroying any copies that they can Get hold of they're not 100 percent right they you know things fall through the cracks but by and large they've been successful to do this so they've had to create a whole security state inquisitors essentially they're called um basically erads mean like eradicators but they not only destroy knowledge but they also interrogate people uh they have a, this hierarchical bureaucratic structure um, now on the surface there's still libraries people go to them for knowledge right and there's librarians there who will help you do that but the whole thing is a much more terrifying experience um, so that's going to be the subject of chapter two. Chapter two is about the like the knowledge side of that. So we we meet uh, Douglas Appleford, who is, and we see his morning procedure, and so we we see a bit of the kind of the humorous aspects of this Hobart phase. He eats his breakfast backwards, of course, engorging food. He puts the whiskers on his face out of a packet. But what's important about Douglas Appleford is that he's our connection to the library, and he's. He, so the, the institutions call it the People's Topical Library, and it, it sounds rather banal, but essentially their their job is to destroy knowledge as at the right time. So basically, we're just seeing his morning procedure. He goes to the library, and he's he runs into uh, Cherise McFadden, like someone who works for him, and she's insisting after the man named Lance, what's his name? Lance are both not who has like a dissertation or like a PhD thesis or something and he wants to have eradicated and he wants to make a big ceremony for it. So rather than eradicating himself, you know, it's a dissertation. So there's really just the one copy, right? So, but instead of eradicating himself, he wants the library to do it because there's more prestige in doing that. That's right. It's more if you can get the library to do it. So he's trying to get an appointment to have that done. And for Apple for, for this is kind of a waste of his time, but he's interested in doing it. This is a lot of the, the short story. We can, uh, your appointment was yesterday, deals with this, this uh, side plot. Much of this, though, they, they start to talk about Raymond Roberts and the UDI rituals and, and what's been going on. So I'm going to read this passage. So it's in the news that there's going to be this huge meeting in Dodger Stadium in L.A. in which the UDI are going to come together. And they've kind of become a much more of a black nationalist organization over, over the years since Peak's death. So it's kind of become almost an African-American religion. Peaks black. Raymond Roberts is also, is also black. But it's also sort of a psychedelic drug cult that tries to use drugs to have religious experiences. And sometimes it just basically gets seen as in popular press and popular conceptions as a, as a drug adult kind of orgy cult. I think he's still having this conversation at his breakfast, though. With No, this is Tinbane. So we met with Apple at work, but Tim Bain comes back from work after a shift, after doing with the dead woman. And he's talking with his wife, Bethel, right? And here's what they get from the paper reports about this rally that's going to take place. The Los Angeles chief of police estimates that four million people will turn out to see him. He's performing the sacrament of defying unification in Dodger Stadium. And of course, we'll all be on TV until we're ready to clear out of our minds all day long. That's what the paper says. I'm not making it up. Four million? Tinbane echoed, thinking professionally how many peace officers it would take to handle crowd control when the crowd consisted of that many. Everyone's on the force, including Skyway Patrol and special deputies. What a job, he groaned inwardly. They use those drugs, Bethel said. It's for the unification they practice. There's a long article on it here, the drugs derivative from DNT. It's illegal here, but when he goes to the performance of sacraments, they let him use it that one time because California law states, I know what it states, Tinbane said. It states that a psychedelic drug can be used in a bona fide religious ceremony. God knew we had this drummed into him by superiors. Bethel said, I have half a mind to go there and participate. It's the only time unless we want to fly to uh, the FNM. And frankly, I don't feel much like doing that. You do that, he said, happily, disgorging cereal, sliced peaches, and milk and sugar in that order. So that's what it is. That's the description of this ritual. But it's it's seen as kind of a, a big orgy almost. Uh, but it's this collective religious experience, which is something that Dick is very much interested in, and of course. It's, it's a major theme in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which will be the next, next novel in our in our list. And then the rest of the chapter is just Tin Bane disgorging his 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 breakfast. So chapter three is about Tin Dane going to the to the library, and he's going to get information on, on Ray Roberts, because he goes to his boss, and the boss tells him that we're going to need guards for the Ray Roberts rally. He's going to need, like, 24-hour protection for a couple days. They discuss the ritual a little bit more, and they, they, they are the ones who call it a drug orgy, in fact. Quote, You'll be interested. There's some strange things in there, things he's said and done, what Udi believes. We're allowing that communal drug experience, you know, even though it's technically illegal. That's what it is, a drug orgy. The religious aspect is just a fabrication, just window dressing. What a weird and violent man, at least so we view him. I guess his followers don't find him so, or maybe they do when they like it. So they send him off to the library to, to find out what he can about Ray Roberts in preparation for this job of, essentially protecting him. Um, at the same time, he run he goes to the library and he runs into. Latte Hermes, you know Sebastian's wife, the one who fears librarians in the library, and she's of course there looking up stuff about the Anarch, the Anarch Peak, for um, her husband's company, which is hoping to, of course, revive the Anarch Peak. The Anarch is the title. I don't think I explained that before. The Anarch is just whatever title this the Udi give to this founder of the religion. I guess it's kind of like a prophet or something. So then we jump to Appleford, who's in the library. His secretary is dealing with this black man who's come in. And the black man comes in, and he asks about Anarch Peak. And in fact, he's pretty clearly realized, Appleford finds out right away, that this man is a simulacrum, a robot. And he works for a guy named Carl Gantrix. And, and so there's kind of a little bit of a joke here where his name becomes Carl Jr. then. The robot is Carl Jr., which, of course, is a chain of fast food restaurants that started in the 50s in, in California. Um, so. That's a kind of a California joke right there, I think, and I bet. Um, but anyway, so we got Carl Jr., who's this robot who works for this guy Gantrix, right? And he's basically trying to get what information he can about the Anarch Peak. And we don't know who he works for, but I'll just, just tell you that he works for Gantrix and, and by extension, Carl Jr. works for the the, Udites, the Udite movement. Um, now... While like Applebaum is looking up stuff, I think yeah, the robot gives him like this big shelf of documents to l- to, sh- to look through, and he starts looking through. And while he's doing that, the robot tries to like put some nanobots and machines and stuff in the card catalog. He's trying to do some spyware into the you know spy robots in there. Applebaum eventually finds out about and is able to destroy and stop the probes. And Gantrix is then forced to call the library and, and kind of apologize and deal with the fact that he's been been called out. But then he basically come out, comes out and right confesses to Applebaum that he wants to know where the Anarch is buried. And that's why he's interested in the library and he was hoping the robot could have basically figured it out, but since he failed, he's gonna have to face directly the, the, you know, the library. And we see, here's our first evidence that this destruction of knowledge actually is a pretty important thing, and and this is the core role of the library, right? Appleford even says, our job here at the library is not to study or to memorize data, it's to expunge it. And Gantrick says, well, you stated your position with clarity and admirable brevity, so we're to assume that the fact the location of the Anarch's body has been expunged, as a fact no longer exists. It has undoubtedly been unwritten, Appleford said, or at least such as a reasonable presumption in accordance with library policies. And again, Gantrix is trying to get him to look, but but Applebaum is annoyed by this and, and says, I'm not going to look for you. So that's all. It's kind of a short chapter. Oh, but one other thing here is... Oh, no, that's in the chapter four. So um, in chapter four, we just have an extended continuation of this scene where Applebaum is, gets a call to the boss of the library, who's a woman named Mavis McGuire, and she's a real... She's a real hard-ass, right? Tough, brutal, right? Willing to use her children, her own family members to assert her will. We're going to learn throughout the course of the novel that she's a really nasty, she's a piece of work, to be sure. And I don't know, it's just like the, the fantasy a child, children, child has of like the oppressive librarian. If We just like injected that on steroids and inflated it. That's what we have here with, with Mavis McGuire. Also, oh, Applebaum actually goes up to see McGuire to report on what happened and how this Gantrix guy tried to send a robot to implant some machinery into the in the library. So the rest of this chapter is a conversation between Officer Tinbane and, and Latte Hermes. And they mostly talk about the Anarch Peak. And Latte here is really not very careful. She she reveals that she knows the location of Anarch Peak's body. She reveals that basically his, her firm, her husband's firm has an interest in it. And she, she's basically too bad you know, babbly here, but you know, she's kind of a naive, silly girl, you know, who's afraid of the library. Right? That's the the image we have. I don't know. It must have been one of, you know, maybe Dick's wife was afraid to go shopping or something and and Dick is kind of you know, or to run some errand and, and Dick is kind of being cathartic about that in this in this novel. But the interesting thing they do is they talk about Anarch Peak's background and that he has a connection to Bishop Pike. This is James Pike. This was a real Anglican bishop, active in the United States, very much a kind of a television theologian of the of the 60s and 70s. And Dick was very much influenced by James Pike. In fact, his final published novel, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, is largely about James Pike. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that that, that um, period. but I do want to like just briefly introduce what his core theological ideas were, of Bishop Pike's to see if they they play a role in this novel so i think the main thing about pike is he's he's sort of the the hippie side of of the clergy because this is at a time when the catholic church in the 60s i mean the catholic church was banning birth control and, and coming out with the Humanae Vitae encyclical which said like you know all birth control is is a sin here's what wikipedia said his outspoken to some heretical views on many theological and social issues made him one of the most controversial public figures of his time he was an early proponent of ordination of women racial desegregation and the acceptance of LGBT people within mainline churches. Pike was the fifth bishop of California. Late in his life, he explored psychic experimentation in an effort to contact his recently deceased son. And of course, that kind of stuff comes into the novel, The three, the Transmigration of Timothy Archer. It says here that uh, Dick and Pike were friends, and Pike officiated Dick's wedding to, to Nancy Hackett. Um, that, that's his fifth wife, fourth wife. So uh, there's not too much here about his theology, though. Um, it seems just seems he was kind of on the social progressive side of things of the church, and and defended Planned Parenthood and things like that from the attacks of of conservatives. Um, now what the the conversation they have here is that basically as peak peak Peake died young he Peake died in his peak died at fifty so he's going to be revived at the peak of his powers right his peak of his intellectual powers but he never had that old age decline so he's going to come right out of the gate running and he's going to be the power force in the Udi Church, this other guy, Raymond, this Raymond guy, Robert Raymond, is going to be passed away. In fact, he's getting younger and younger. So it's really gonna be Peek who's going to, to, to lead the thing. They talk a little bit about how Vitarians sell people, and we're gonna get a first-hand account of that later on in the story. But the real point here is that, the important point that happens in this chapter is that Hermes reveals she knows where the body is. So um, it's kind of out there now, in the library, in, because we're a surveillance state here, so everything they say is being recorded, uh, Tinday knows it, that the Hermes Vitarium knows where Anarch Peak's body is, and knows he's going to be risen soon. They don't know where, though. They just know that someone knows. And so much of the novel, then, is going to be this competition over acquiring and securing this body. and And... For what reason i don't know different people have different reasons for for why he's scared some maybe want to kill him to protect their own interests some maybe want to embrace him as a spiritual leader um, what the library was interested in him is to eradicate him they don't want him writing books because they just finished burning all his books Eradic well eradicating his books they don't want him to just rewrite them as a as a oldborn. okay chapter five um tin bane goes back to his boss because the boss's name is gore i don't think he's that important but uh and they talk about this, and th- now they know that Roberts is going to have this interest in Peak, and Anarch Peak is rising up, and they think that Roberts is probably going to want to kill Peak because the Peak, that Peak's going to be a threat to his position in the church. So they suggest that the police maybe find and secure Peak. So for you know, the police here for a brief period become a player in this game as well. Um, Tinbane then goes to the Hermes Vitarium. And he starts to ask around. And, and we see the beginnings of a relationship between Tinbane and Lotte emerging. And he, the reason we think this is because he starts to ask a question really about, he wants to ask a theological question of that Father Fanes, the, the religious leader, the religious advisor at the, at the Vitarium. He wants to ask a question like, do ideas matter or do only actions matter? Which is, of course, a key theological issue, right? Does thinking you want to murder someone but not actually murdering that person a sin, right? But he doesn't say murder, he says adultery first. So he says, like, a, like imagine you're having a dream. He says, he's telling this theologian, you know, imagine you're having a dream or you're having making, having sex with another woman, you know, is that a sin? And he says, well, it's a sin if you like it afterwards and you remember it and you kind of fantasize about it. So according to the religious point of view, yes, intentions matter and thoughts matter, not just not just actions. Right, but it it seems he is going to start to make a move on, on on Lotte. They they talk a little bit about the ambiguity of the Hobart phase. So there's this guy RC. What's his name again? RC Buckley, and he's like the sales. Rep, he's the sales guy. So he's the one who deals with after the revivals. He's the one who makes money for the company by selling off the person. Um, and they talk about the Hobart phase, and they're not even quite sure how it works entirely for people who are born naturally, right? It's very clear that the, the, the old born go back in time, get younger and younger, and eventually have to crawl into a womb somewhere. And eventually have to be, someone has to have sex with this woman to actually vanish you out of existence. It's really bizarre. And it doesn't have to be your father, right? You'd think it would have to be your father would have to, you know, have sex with your mother again, but it's not the case. It's just, it could just be any man. Or it could, be, it could be any womb, right, that you crawl into. It doesn't have to be your mother. Anyways, but it seems that the people who were born naturally. It's not clear whether they go back in time. For instance, Tinbane said, Are you sure? I thought you had to be already dead to be, be born and get younger. Christ, R.C. said, don't you understand anti-time at all? Listen, I knew her. She was older. I was older. We all were, I think. You know what I think? you got a mental block against facing it because you're young now, too. In fact, you, too, can't afford to get any younger. Can't be a cop if you do. So it's, it's, it's not clear whether these people actually do get younger or not. It seems even the people at the time don't know it. And I don't know. There's kind of that, you know, you don't feel day to day you're getting older. So I guess you wouldn't feel day to day you're getting younger. So Tinbane eventually leaves after having these conversations, and then we have a long conversation about the politics of the revival of, of Peak, which everyone is fairly aware of, and certainly Sebastian is, that there are going to be people who want him, and it's kind of a dangerous game, and uh, that they're going to have to work fast and efficiently if they even want to get the body, right? In fact, they debate whether they should dig out Peak early and just keep him at the Vitarium until he wakes up, and that's kind of a no-no. You're not supposed to touch the bodies until you actually hear them calling for For help. Now, just to make clear that there are many interested parties who might want uh, Anarch Peak's body, maybe dead or alive, is they get a call from from Rome. They get an Italian calling them a man named Tony, and he starts inquiring about the Anarch Peak. And this really scares Sebastian. He he thinks, uh, how could anyone know? Only the six of us here, our organization, know. Lata. He thought, then she knows too. Could she have told anyone? Well, it's come to light eventually if they expected to sell the Anarch. But it this soon, before they actually had the physical custody, this made it imperative, he realized, to get the Anarch out of the ground with no delay, law or no law. I bet it was Lota, he thought, damn her. And so then they set off for the grave digging mission. They decide they commit to having to break the law to dig up the Anarch now before they, they lose their chance entirely. Um, so that's the first quarter or so of Counterclock World, the first five chapters. Um, so a lot of great stuff in here, a lot of interesting kind of theological speculation. Like with a lot of Dick's theology, it's a bit muddled and, and confused at times, and his philosophy is a bit heterodox. But, um, you know, obviously in a world in which people are rising from the dead, you know, it's very hard to, to hold to kind of a, a secular worldview. This seems to be a, real, a divine act that that's making this happen so almost everyone here is is religious of course they come at it with different ways right new religious movements are seem to be the alternative to mainstream religion here not atheism right i've I often had this question about americans why when they turn their back on their like church of their parents why do they often join like they, they'll believe in ghosts or crystals or tarot cards or psychic powers they'll turn to kind of this other religion quasi-religion right when they reject the mainstream religion but anyways um i i like this novel I, I it's a novel i kind of avoided i i didn't think much of it and when i when i wrote a book on philip dick i don't even think i reread counter world at the time but now i regret not having done that i think there's a lot of important things and themes in this in this text on on marriage on family on, on kind of politics institutional power you know knowledge a lot of great stuff here. So um, read Counterclock World and enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. So uh, in the next episode, I'll look at chapters 6 through 10, I believe, which will take us to about the halfway point of, of the story. So as always, thanks for listening. If you have any questions or thoughts about counter Clock World, please leave them below or send me an email at 100 gmail at gmail.com. And uh, while you're here, you might want to check out my other reviews of American Writers. Um, in my main mainstream podcast So again thanks See you next time Forget, You must search Till you find A bird You will find Peace and Contentment Forever If you